shock and awe. It's a military doctrine first employed by the United States in 2003 with the war in Iraq. On March the 21st, the U.S. launched 1,700 air sorties over the skies of Baghdad, including 504 cruise missiles. All day long that day, Baghdad was hit with precision, precision strike after precision strike. Military targets were taken out. The city's infrastructure was crippled. Shock and awe knocked out the city's power grid and water supply. The intention was to overwhelm the Iraqis. Military strategists call it rapid dominance. The invader exhausts the occupier until they lose the will to fight. This colossal show of force paralyzes any resistance and convinces everyone on the ground of the inevitability of their defeat. So by the time the troops roll in, the locals are ready to capitulate and accept a new regime. The whole idea is to wage war with minimal bloodshed. And that's what happened in Iraq. By April 5th, in just two weeks, coalition forces had seized Baghdad. I bring all this up since what we've been reading about in Revelation is God's implementation of a shock and awe strategy. God will exercise a rapid dominance. One day, he will overwhelm the earth in anticipation of an actual ground invasion. And God's goal is a regime change. Understand, this world belongs to God. Its creator gave authority over the earth to the first couple, Adam and Eve. Thus, when Adam rebelled... Satan was able to usurp authority from the hapless humans. Today, Satan has taken over a world that doesn't belong to him. He has become a squatter. On the cross, Jesus began the process of taking back his creation. He started with the legalities. On Calvary, Jesus paid off the liens, the debt our sin had caused. Then when he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he walked right into God's courthouse and he reclaimed the title deed to planet earth. We saw him do this in Revelation chapter 5, remember. John had said, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals? That's when one of heaven's elders spoke up and declared, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll. Jesus created the universe. Now he's purchased it and he holds its papers in his hand. It's not yet, though, in his possession. See, ownership doesn't necessarily mean occupation. So here's our current situation the earth is overrun with Satan and demons and evil men. The rebels have rejected God and have had their own way. It's a jungle out there, but Jesus is the king of the jungle. And one day, he'll prove the point with papers in his hands and invasion in his plans, he'll come to put the devil in company and all their stuff out on the street. The book of Revelation is all about a future shock and awe, a final seven-year period of rapid dominance, in the great tribulation, God will overwhelm the earth. 
He'll cripple the infrastructure. As the angels cried out in the previous chapter, Babylon the great has fallen. From heaven a righteous judge will riddle the planet with surgical strikes. He'll punish the evil systems of this world. When he breaks seven seals and when he blasts seven trumpets and when he empties out seven bowls full of his wrath. God's goal is to tap out mankind's resistance and hasten a surrender to the inevitability of their defeat. Chronologically now, we're still at the end of Revelation 16 and the seventh bold judgment. God has launched an aerial assault. You remember we talked about it. A hundred pound hailstones are falling from the sky. Man's blasphemy is receiving a biblical punishment. This is shock and awe. God's strategy is to overwhelm the world before the ground forces arrive. And it's an act of mercy in reality to lessen the carnage God tries to soften man's resistance. Yet instead of repent, mankind shakes its fist in God's face to the bitter end. That's how rebellious we are. Chapter 19 describes the final throes of this current age. The revolt launched by Satan finally comes to an end. Understand, you and I can know the future. History is no mystery. The final chapter has already been written. If you want to know how it all ends, read Revelation chapter 19. And it's interesting how this chapter opens. There's lots of saber rattling on earth. The earth is prepping for war, whereas heaven is preparing for a wedding. Heaven now is in party mode. It's hosting a celebration. John begins chapter 19. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Note the word, Alleluia. Its origins are Hebrew. It's a compound word. Alel means praise, and Yah is a contracted form of God's name, Yahweh. Put the two together, and the word means praise God. Alleluia. Praise God for his glory and salvation, whether men receive it or not. Sadly, if the world wants to go to hell in a handbasket, so be it. But here heaven erupts in praise. God is still to be praised for his heart is to save. And then he says, for true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her. Babylon, the great harlot, represented a phony and false religious system. The Antichrist claimed to be the savior. In the end, he'll be revealed as a tyrant. The world will be duped. In contrast to phony and false, Jesus is true and righteous. He's true. He's genuine as opposed to counterfeit. And he's righteous. He's faithful as opposed to being a liar. Jesus is everything this world is not. And then verse 3, again they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Chapter 17 and 18, the two previous chapters discuss God's overthrow of the two-headed Babylonian system. 
Babylon was a harlot, a wicked religious system, a church without the church. The prostitute seduced the world to deny God and pledge allegiance to the beast. And she was helped by a commercial system, also known as Babylon, who extorted the world's worship. A mark, a 666, as John describes it, will be needed to buy or sell. And to receive that mark, you'll have to sell your soul. People will suppress their lingering longings for the one true Christ, Jesus, and bow their knee to the Antichrist. Chapter 18, verse 18 predicts this evil system will be burned to a crisp in one hour. And yet here we read, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Notice the earth weeps and wails and griefs are lost, whereas heaven shouts, Alleluia. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. You know, you might be interested to know that the word Alleluia appears 24 times in the Hebrew Bible, mostly in the Psalms. It's a common exclamation of praise. But the word appears only four times in the New Testament. And guess what? All of its uses are right here. See, it's as if, it's as if God saves all of his hallelujahs for this moment. As man's rebellion reaches a breaking point on earth, God's praise crescendos in the heavens. For centuries, the heavenly host has watched Satan steal and kill and destroy. Now that his kingdom is on the ropes, heaven erupts in praise, a chorus of alleluias. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia. A voice calls on heaven to praise God and a mighty roar goes up like a waterfall or a thunderclap. A great multitude shouts out, Alleluia. Now, obviously, alleluia is an English term, but do you know how it's pronounced in Spanish or in Arabic <laughs> or in Mandarin or in Yoruba? It's the same, alleluia. It's a universal word. Even heaven shouts alleluias to God. But that's just half of heaven's shout. For the triumphant chorus rings out, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Earth's impending collapse reminds heaven who it is that rules. The Lord is omnipotent or all-powerful. See, heaven is sure that there's no problem God can't solve. I hope you're confident of that as well. Wayne Vallis worked in the White House as a special assistant to the presidents Nixon, Ford, and Reagan. When he finally called it quits, his resignation was full of despair. Vallis wrote, I've come to believe, especially after my time with Reagan, that there is no ultimate solution to human problems. Hopefully you can trade more vexing problems 
for less vexing problems. Here's the opinion of a man who spent his whole adult life in government. All that the best humans can do is trade more vexing problems for less vexing problems. You see, the reason governments are so impotent is because they depend on fallible, frail, foolish human beings. John here declares earth's only hope. God omnipotent reigns. In this campaign season, I saw this yard sign recently. There it is. Jesus 2020, our only hope. Hey, I want you to go to the polls and I want you to vote. In a democratically elected country, you need to vote. It's your responsibility to go and vote. But every day and in every way, I hope your life votes for Jesus. That's the most important vote you cast. Today, God sits on heaven's throne. For the moment, he's allowing humans to be in charge in order to prove how incapable we are. But the day is coming when the omnipotent will flex his muscle and establish his kingdom. Here, the sound from heaven thunders our hope. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. And then verse 7 Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Notice here the greatness of God. He is both omnipotent yet intimate. He's high yet nigh. He leads and he loves. Jesus is not only the king of the jungle, but he's the bridegroom who cherishes and nurtures his bride. And guess what? You are that bride. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are betrothed to him. You are destined to marry the lamb. You know, Hebrew marriage rites came in three stages. First was the engagement. Often parents arranged their children's marriage when the kids were very young. The second stage was the betrothal. When the kids came of age... There at the home of the bride, the couple would exchange vows. Then the groom would leave to prepare a place for them to live. Often this involved building a room onto his father's house. From this point, they could, they were actually legally married with the exception of sexual relations. The marriage wasn't consummated until the feast, which was the third stage of marriage. Once preparations were complete, the groom would then return for his bride, sweep her up, and then take her home to be with him. And it was at the marriage feast that the couple would celebrate with family and friends, then enter into the bridal chamber to consummate their marriage. And this is a beautiful overview of Jesus' dealings with his bride, the church. Our engagement has been prearranged. The New Testament teaches us that Those of us that are in Christ were chosen before the foundations of the world. When we put our faith in Jesus, we took a vow and we were betrothed. We reserved ourselves for Jesus. And Jesus has now returned to heaven. In his father's house are many mansions, are many rooms, he said. And he's gone to prepare a place for us. And when he's finished, he's promised to return and take us to live with him forever. 
And in verse 8, we see the bride at her marriage supper. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Notice the bride is dressed to the hilt. When Lydia Taylor got married, rather than shell out big bucks for her wedding gown, she actually knitted her own. Can you imagine knitting your own wedding gown? It took Lydia four months and over 100,000 stitches. And here we're told that we too are making our own wedding dress. See, when you meet Jesus, you'll be clothed in your own righteous acts, we're told. Do you know what that means? That means some of you are going to be married to Jesus Christ for all eternity in your sweatpants and hoodie. If you have any fashion sense at all, you won't let that happen. You don't want to be stuck wearing a tattered t-shirt on your wedding day. You need to begin now to serve God with your time and your effort and your money and your passions. For all that you do for him with love in your heart is weaving for you a beautiful wedding gown for that day. She was dressed in fine linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints. And then verse 9, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The word blessed means happy. Happy are those who have saved the date. Here's the big question. Have you saved the date? Now, I know we don't have an actual date. In fact, Jesus said nobody knows the day or the hour. But are you excited about leaving this world and moving in with Jesus? You know, I've never met an engaged couple who wasn't ready for their wedding day. They were packed and eager and full of anticipation. That's what we need to be. The next big event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture or the snatching away of his church. When God pours out his judgments on earth, his church will be in heaven celebrating our marriage to his son. Recall at his first coming on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples and at the Last Supper, Jesus talked of this marriage supper, this future supper. In essence, Jesus toasted his bride, and he told his disciples that he wouldn't drink of the cup again until he drank it with his followers in his kingdom. Well, here in Revelation 19, the marriage is consummated. The party begins. Jesus and his bride begin a celebration of love that will last for all eternity. Verse 9, and he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. I just fell at his feet to worship him. The hymn here is the mighty angel that John saw back in chapter 18, verse 21. And this angel had made an impact on John. For one, he had quite an arm. You remember he threw a huge millstone into the oceans, announcing the fall of Satan's evil empire. In fact, John was so impressed with this angel that he falls down to worship him. And yet notice how the angel responds. But he said to me, 
See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Hey, this angel is appalled at the prospects of being worshiped. He's just a servant. He's God's errand boy just like John. He deflects the veneration. God alone is worthy of our worship. You know, angels are awesome, magnificent creatures. In fact, if you were to see an angel with your eyes, you would drop to the ground tempted to worship. But don't. There's only one angel who craves and relishes our worship, and that's Lucifer of old, the fallen angel. Here the angel tells John, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And here's a strategic verse for serious Bible students. The spirit behind Scripture, the theme of the book, of all the Scripture, the burrow where all the rabbit trails lead, is Jesus Christ. He is the spirit of prophecy. The written word declares the living word, Jesus Christ. And then verse 11 shifts. It shifts the focus from heaven to earth, from a bridal suite in heaven to a battle scene on earth. For John writes, now I saw heaven opened. Earlier in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, heaven opened to let the church enter. Now it opens for Jesus to come out. Suddenly John is on location in Israel to cover the final battle. He's standing on a hill overlooking the valley of Megiddo. The French general Napoleon stood over this same expanse and once remarked, all the armies of the world could maneuver for battle here. And according to verse 16, that's exactly what happens. The armies of a worldwide coalition of nations under the Antichrist will gather in the valley of Megiddo. Their sights are set on Jerusalem. This is often called the Battle of Armageddon, but Megiddo is just the staging ground. This is the Battle of Jerusalem. According to the prophet Joel, chapter 3, verse 2, God will draw the nations one day to the holy city. It says, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the Kidron Valley, east of Jerusalem, right next to the Temple Mount. He says, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. And notice, they have divided up my land. Notice God's beef with the nations. They have divided my land. And they had no right to do so. What we call the Holy Land belongs to God. It's his land. And he can give it to whomever he pleases. It's his land. And this has huge political ramifications for today. The world community continually pressures Israel to divvy up the land that God gave them and give parcels to the Palestinians. Even when their Arab neighbors have more than enough land for the Palestinians to be accommodated. Today, Jerusalem is a divided city, east and west, Jewish and Arab. And this angers the Almighty. And in the last days, troops will march on Jerusalem to further divide Israel. 
But while camped near the mountain of Megiddo or Armageddon, a strange, unexpected development occurs. Heaven opens and a new general appears. Verse 11. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. The first time Jesus presented himself to the nation when he made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, he was on the back of a burrow. He came in humility. Jesus came to serve. But he takes no donkey ride this time. He's on a stallion. And not just some ceremonial steed. The Romans liked to put their conquering generals on the back of a beautiful stallion that would dance and prance and strut and play to the crowd. A show animal. No, this is a war horse. It's ready to charge. It's bred for battle. It's shaking its mane and stomping its hooves. Hot breath billows out of its nostrils. And we're told of his rider, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 8, God tells us there is a time for war and a time for peace. At his first entry into Jerusalem, Jesus came to save. But the second time, he will come to slaughter. He comes to judge and make war with the armies of this world. Recall the effort now that Jesus has made throughout the great tribulation to preach the gospel to the world. Two prophets in Jerusalem declared God's grace. 144,000 Jewish evangelists spread the gospel. Angels broadcast from the sky. Yet mankind has refused to submit and in his rebellion. He's defiant. Think about it. Puny little man tries to draw down now on the king of the jungle. It's time for the madness to end. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 labels Jesus the Prince of Peace. We talk about that at Christmas time. But he gets that title only after he kills off all his enemies. It's true. No, when Jesus returns to this earth the second time, he'll be coming to bust chops, take names, and start breaking kneecaps. Moses makes a stunning statement in Exodus 15 verse 3. It sa he says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You don't hear that much about the Lord these days, but it's true. Isaiah 42 verse 13 chimes in. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. The Prince of Peace is no pacifist. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul speaks of the rapture. Jesus will come in the clouds for his church. And in verse 18, he follows it all up by saying, Comfort one another with these words. You know, the rapture is intended to be a great comfort to us, and it is. But not the second coming, which happens after the great tribulation. This vision should scare you spitless. You want Jesus to be your Savior, not your judge. You want to love the Lamb, not make war with the lion. In that day, the Antichrist and his allies will appear to be a formidable force. 
They'll be stretched across the theater floor, gnashing their teeth, adding to their blasphemies, strengthening God's case against them. When suddenly heaven will open, God's champion will appear. Verse 12 describes him. His eyes were like a flame of fire. They're burning with vengeance. And on his head are many crowns. At his first coming, the only crown Jesus wore was a crown of thorns. But now he wears royal diadems, kingly crowns, many of them. And he has a name written that no one knew except himself. I'm not sure what to make of this. Perhaps Jesus has earned a combat nickname. Something he's gained through conflicts and war. Maybe the Red Baron. Or Top Gun. Maybe Jesus will be called Top Gun. You know, it was said of the crusader Richard I of England, he was known as the Lionheart. Boy, that would be a great name for Jesus. The Lionheart. Verse 13 tells us, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, here's an interesting passage. It's taken from Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah sees a man in blood-soaked garments, and he asks him, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Apparently, the battle of Jerusalem in the last days will spill over into all Israel, as far south as Basra near the Dead Sea. I love what this man says to Isaiah. He says, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And that should clear up his identity for us. For there is none other than Jesus who is mighty to save. Who else can make that claim? Than Jesus Christ. And then Isaiah asks him, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And Jesus answers the prophet, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Isaiah and now John both see the Savior with robes soaked in the blood of his enemies. At his first visit, Roman soldiers gambled for Jesus' bloody robe. When he returns, his robe will be stained with the blood of soldiers who fight for a revived Rome. Verse 14 And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The armies of heaven. And who makes up the armies of heaven? I think there are four battalions. First, there's the angelic guard. The cherubim and the seraphim and the living creatures. They're God's special forces. Their helicopter-like wings and ferocious grills and night vision eyes make them fierce fighters. And they've been wanting a piece of the evil serpent since the day he fell. They're ready. The second battalion are the Old Testament believers. Abraham and Joshua and David. They've had a long time since they felt the rush of combat. They've had plenty of time now to get psyched up for this battle. 
They're ready. And then third are the tribulation saints. These are those whose wounds are fresh. They've taken one for the team. These martyrs would love nothing more than to get even with the beast. But there's a fourth battalion. And this fourth battalion of the Lord's army, you won't believe it. You need to get ready for this. It's going to blow your mind. Guess who it is? It's you and it's me. It's the church. The church will also ride with Jesus. Jude 14 proclaims, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. And in Colossians 3 verse 4, written to the church says, When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When he appears, you'll appear with him in his glory. Here is the mother of all battles. Jesus in heaven's army faces off with Satan and his allies. Modern armies of all the nations are stretched across Israel when a door opens in heaven and out gallops Jesus on his war mount. Behind him, you and I and 10,000 of his saints come hooping and hollering. I plan to keep my horse tight behind Jesus, friend. Imagine when the call comes to mount up. We'll pull ourselves from praise and we'll saddle up our steed. Suddenly the door will open and like an airplane descending out of a bank of clouds, the sky will open up before us and we'll see a hostile battlefield. Military hardware aimed right at us. Tanks will fire their rockets. Missiles will launch. You'll hear surface-to-air zingers sailing right past your head. Explosions and sizzling sounds surround you. Your heart is pounding out of your chest. Then suddenly you look down and you see a little red dot light up on your shirt. A laser has you targeted. A rocket is locked onto you. Oh no, I'm cooked. That's when something absolutely amazing is going to happen. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. Remember, this is the final act in the galactic battle between God and Satan. This is the showdown that's been brewing since creation. No other battle has been given such hype and hoopla. This is the spiritual Super Bowl, Armageddon. Yet it turns out to be a blowout. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 predicts its outcome. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Jesus will simply breathe on the beast or on the Antichrist and blow him away. It's the breath of death. He destroys the enemy by breathing God's word. Even his word, even his breath is like a sharp sword. The God who breathed into Adam's nostrils and he became a living soul, who breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit, now breathes again and destroys the armies of the beast. In the same passage, Paul tells us the Antichrist is destroyed with the brightness of Jesus' coming. What his breath doesn't vaporize, the light of his glory will. 
the sheer brightness of Jesus' coming will wither the beast, disintegrating the enemy's armies. Antichrist will suffer from a case of sunburn. Then he himself will rule with a rod of iron. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Understand, sin is not a victimless crime. You don't steal or lust in a vacuum. You steal from a shopkeeper. Someone gets harmed. When you lust, you treat a woman less than a person. She becomes a toy you use, not a person you respect. She gets harmed. For God to be merciful to the shopkeeper, he has to restrain the thief. This means that if sinners don't get saved and stop sinning, then the sinner has to be stopped somehow. And when Jesus returns, he is going to forcibly stop sinners from sinning. In the words of Psalm 2, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. You're going to comply or else. And as a result, this earth will be a safer, better, happier, more peaceful place. For he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Remember back in Revelation 14, there was blood, not wine, squirting from the winepress. Why? Jesus executes judgment on sinners. Notice how Jesus takes all this so personally. He doesn't delegate the task. We're told he himself treads the winepress. You, you, we, we need to be reminded that sin isn't just breaking the rules. It's breaking God's heart. It's literally a fist in God's face. It's rebellion against his will. It's an affront to his wisdom. It's a snub against his love. And when you do it continually and refuse to repent, it gets personal to God. There comes a point when Jesus has to take action. I mean, who would enjoy heaven if it was spent with people hell-bent on defying God and doing evil and abusing others? That wouldn't be heaven. It would be a hell. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Jesus comes to judge, and he's dressed for the job here. Notice, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. Now understand, ancient warriors decorated their faces and their limbs with paint. It made them look menacing. And here Jesus has a title scripted down his thigh. You can see it when he rides his horse onto the battlefield. It reads, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. The earth has been littered for millenniums with so called kings and lords, but there is only one King of all kings and only one Lord of all lords. Jesus Christ is the champ, and he's returning to earth to take on all challengers. You've seen the bumper sticker, Visualize World Peace? You ever seen that bumper sticker? Well, when I read Revelation 19, this is how I visualize world peace. Here's how. Jesus annihilates Satan in his rebellion. He retakes the reins of a runaway planet. 
He conquers his enemies and establishes his kingdom and enforces obedience to his sovereign will. Then and only then will we realize world peace. Notice verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Here's an invitation to another supper. The church feasts at the marriage supper of the Lamb, while birds and vultures feast on the flesh of the fallen. Birds fly to the battlefield to peck on the corpses. Verse 19, And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And at the rapture, Jesus comes as a thief in the night. He surprises this evil world. No one expected him. But at his second coming, the armies of the earth rally against him. The nations are resisting his will and his arrival. Jesus is coming to defend Jerusalem. According to Zechariah 14, this all happens over the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Imagine one day earth will fight heaven. Mankind will square off with Almighty God. Pity the puny humans. And then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The demonic duo, the satanically inspired ruler and the apostate religious leader who paved his way are thrown into hell fire. And notice this isn't Hades, what's been a temporary place of torment. It's Gehenna. It's the lake of fire. Remember, Jesus said that God created this lake of fire for the devil and his angels. Its first inhabitants will be the beastie boys. And then the chapter closes. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And you might think, how can God take a life? I'm having a hard time getting my mind around that, Sandy. How can God take a life? Well, let me give you an answer, but, but an answer that you might not expect. What God does to these rebels, he has already done to his own son. Remember, the father oversaw Jesus' death on the cross. The wages of sin is death. Thus, Jesus died in our place. And because of his death, men today don't have to die. They do so only because they reject Jesus. That means that each death at Armageddon will be a senseless suicide that could have been avoided had they fallen on the mercies of God and put their faith in Jesus Christ. With the breath of his mouth and with the brightness of his coming, Jesus will defeat the beast and his army. 
The Old Testament prophet Zechariah tells us that Jesus will touch down on the Mount of Olives where the mere weight of his big toe will trigger a colossal earthquake. It'll split the mountain in two. Jesus will bust through the eastern gate and onto the temple mount where he'll cleanse the temple and reign on earth for a thousand years. And finally, finally, the prayer will be answered, which has been prayed by followers of Jesus for centuries. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The war is over now. Jesus has evicted the squatters and he's taken possession. But he tore up the place in the process, didn't he? Now a reclamation begins. Everything that sin has damaged, Jesus intends to redeem. Chapter 19 closes with the universe under new management. And in chapter 20, the king of the jungle will turn the jungle into a paradise.